Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello, hello, this is Colin. Welcome back from your weekends. A little bit later in the show today, we're going to talk to Washington Post journalist Margaret Sullivan about the current reporting on the crisis facing the post office. There does seem to be a systematic attempt to curtail the ability of the post office to deliver mail, which when you think about it is kind of counterintuitive. I mean, I'm 65 years old. I was sort of brought up with the idea that you really want them to deliver mail. Uh, But what do I know? I mean, maybe President Trump is just thinking outside the box in a way that I can't see. But we're going to talk about also how that gets reported on, how we communicate about it. So that is to come. But, you know, every Monday we do try to provide you with the latest uh, information about uh, the COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic. Uh, and we're going to do that again today. We are uh, excited to welcome back for a repeat appearance, uh, the master of TWIV, uh, Vincent Racaniello. He is a professor of microbiology and immunology at the College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, uh, of Columbia University. But very relevantly, he is the uh, host the Uber host uh, of the podcast this week in virology, better known as TWIV, uh, and uh, which has become appointment listening for many, many, many of us uh, clinicians, researchers, but also just members of the common ruck like me. So, uh, Dr. Vincent Racaniello, welcome back to our show. Oh, I love being the Uber host. Sounds great. You are you the Uber host of all the masters of TWIV. <laughs> so... You know, I mean, <laughs> many of the things we may be ha- saying in this conversation will represent repeats of things that we said in our previous conversation because things tend not to get fixed. Um, so we still, at this point, six months into this pandemic, don't really have a robust or comprehensive national testing strategy. In other words, we don't we don't have a national testing program that is big enough and comprehensive enough uh, to to give us the kind of information we would need to catch up with the infections. Is that a fair statement? Oh, it's absolutely fair. From the first days in January, we should have had a federal-driven testing system. But as you know, the CDC bungled early on in getting their own tests going, and that, that delayed for over a month getting testing. Uh, and then it turned out they were doing the wrong test. It's too expensive and too lengthy. And now when we realize we should be doing cheap, quick tests that people could take every day, uh, we're not there because uh, we didn't think about it long enough ago. So it is a complete mess. Everyone should be furious because there's no need for any of this. So let's let's uh, drill down a little bit on the test you were just referring to, the so-called PCR test. It is for better or worse, currently the state of the art for testing uh, in America. Uh, We should say also that there have been recent reports that uh, over the last week or two, we might have even sagged a little bit in our rate of testing. But basically, we're testing between 700 and 800,000 people a day. Most of that testing is done through nasal swabs, uh, which are then subjected to a reagent. uh, And 
as you say, it's expensive to do. It's, it takes a long time to get results sometimes. But there's also a way in which, and a way which that I don't entirely fully understand, I don't think. But in listening to the masters of TWIV, there, there's something else about this test that you guys don't like that much, right? You, there's some way in which it's not really giving the most pertinent information that one would want in, in a pandemic. Absolutely. So what we need to know is who is transmitting the virus. We don't care if you're infected but not transmitting. And that can happen early when you're infected, shortly after you, you acquire an infection. There's a, a period of time, the incubation period, before which you were not transmitting. And then virus levels rise about a day before the symptom onset. They get uh, to the point where you will transmit. And then a day after symptom onset, they peak. And then over the next seven days, they go down. And after that, you are not transmitting. And that's the only period we care about. But PCR picks up before transmission and after transmission. And we didn't know that at the beginning. All right. So let's be fair. We do know that. We've known that for a few months now. So we need tests that only focus on that transmission because that's all that matters, clearly. Right. So the PCR can even, as I understand it, it's so sensitive that it will pick up sort of genetic fragments uh, yes. of, of virus. So you have a, a, a test that's almost too sensitive. And I think also linguistically, in, a, in most Americans, including me, I've had a few people in my life who've had to be tested before hospital procedures or, or whatever. We, we only ever talk about positive and negative. There may be people like you who are talking in a much more subtle way about CT rates and stuff like that. But most Americans think, well, you're either positive or you're negative, right? Yes, absolutely. So yeah, I'm positive. That's bad. I got to stay away from people, right? Mm -hmm. And um, negative, good. I can I can go do things. But that's not really what we need to know. Just because you're positive, as you said, you could have fragments of RNA. It's not necessarily virus that can infect anyone. And so for especially for going back to school, the key is whether you're shedding RNA, whether you could transmit infection. Because if you're not, we don't really care about that. And that's so hard to get people to change they're thinking from physicians all the way across uh, society. You cannot get people to get away from this sensitivity thing. It's got to be really sensitive. It's got to be the best possible. But what about false negatives? We don't care. It's going to be positive if you're in that transmission zone. Right. So, uh, you know, even watching. So you you had Michael Mina, who we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, in this conversation, but you had him on a recent episode of TWIV. We've had him on our show, too. And there was a point in there where you guys started to talk to, to Mina. He's from Harvard's Chan School of Public Health and is a big proponent of finding a, a cheaper and more relevant kind of test. But at one point, you guys were sort of talking to him, asking him about, well, what's the actual level? What's the actual presence of virus that would indicate transmissibility would that would make an infected person a danger to another person and you know i mean at six months in i would think that that would be sort of gospel at this point that like everybody who's connected to this whole scenario would know that number but it was kind of you know i, I don't know it was being talked about like it was information that hadn't really been pinned down and circulated no it's it still isn't because fda will not acknowledge that any test has to be related in any way to transmission at all. All they care about is detecting infection, and that's really unfortunate. And that, so, you know, that passes on to physicians because physicians only take what they're told, right? They don't figure out anything on their own. And if the FDA is telling them we have to be sensitive, 
that's the way they're going to think about it. But before Mina, I frankly hadn't thought about it at all. And we got him on because I'd heard he's working on testing. That's it. And, you know, he blew us away during that episode because he made these these statements that make perfect sense and are congruent with what we know, and which is what we should be doing right now, For as I've said. So over the weekend, we did get a little bit of news that's relevant to all that, and that is uh, that the FDA has approved um, a rapid and inexpensive saliva test. It's called Saliva Direct. I should just say that that was my rap name in the 90s. Uh, I'm not looking for any money from these people. but um, and, and so and this is kind of what Mina has been talking about, because the other problem, of course, is you can't get a PCR test just because you want it. It's closer to being a prescription drug than it is to being like a home pregnancy test that you'd pick up at a, at a drugstore. Right. This yeah. the, the other problem with the PCR is it's not available just because you think you want to test yourself. Now, now the, the FDA approval over the weekend for a saliva test is still a PCR-based test, right? So it's not ubermina, to use your right. word. <laughs> mm-hmm. it is, uh, it's great that we use saliva because a nasopharyngeal swab is very uncomfortable, and especially for young kids, that would be objectionable. You might not get the right uh, sampling. So saliva is great. Uh, we can detect infection. But we're still looking for, for nucleic acid by uh, a lengthy and, and costly PCR test. So while it's better... We're still not at the MENA level yet. Right. Although, you know, they are talking about because Yale developed it and they're making uh, it uh, open source and the processing of it is is a little faster than the PCR. It, mm-hmm. You know, they're talking about it like a $10 price point for that. Um, although, let's just stay with this for a second. I'm going to drag you way out of the dens of microbiology and virology uh, and into kind of behavioral economics. Because the one thing that... I haven't had a chance to ask Mina about is the whole question of let's say that we finally get the Uber Mina test. Let's say we've got, you know, the 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 COVID equivalent of a home pregnancy test. You go, you buy it for 10 bucks, you buy a whole bunch of them, you test yourself whenever you want to. Uh, you get two blue lines or something if you are, in fact, um, COVID positive and, and probably uh, transmissibly contagious. You know, you're still kind of reliant on people. Like if I'm a laborer who, you know, who needs to go to work to feed my family, if I'm living kind of paycheck to paycheck, I don't even want to take that test. I mean, you, it, there's going to be a behavioral component to that if we get into self-testing. No, you're absolutely right. I don't pretty, I don't care too much about the, the laborers and whatever. I'm caring about the kids at this point because mm-hmm. if we want to get them back to school, this is the only way to do it safely. And they will do it. Their parents will make sure they do it. Um, I'm pretty sure more than an adult would make sure they would they would do that test. So that is where we need to do it at the moment because if you're thinking of opening school, if you're not testing, forget it, especially if you have uh, infections going on in your community. Yeah, I think your uh, your cl- your superstar clinician Daniel Griffin said that without testing, reopening school is like everybody in the family getting into a car with the kid at the steering wheel, <laughs> uh, and, and you know the older and more susceptible members of the family sitting next to uh, next to the kid, and no breaks. Um, right. that, that that in a way, what's going to happen if we put kids back in school? Obviously, we're all all of us who are connected uh, in the quarantine bubble with that kid. Uh, we're all going to be susceptible, and, and we're not going to know what's happening. Yeah, no, kids drive pandemics. There's no doubt about it. We seem to forget, right? With all this conversation about kids not transmitting, including from people who are supposedly experts like pediatricians, uh, they forget 
kids drive pandemics always. It's historically been always the case. And why should this be any different? So you recently did a show uh, where you had a lot of biological, biological mathematicians and statisticians. Let me just say, I'm a big TWIV fan, as, as anybody can tell. Uh, and TWIV can get a little wonky for people like me. These people... <laughs> Yeah. I, th I think you thought they were wonky. So, so it was a little hard to for some of us lay people to understand. Did that show give you a different insight on school reopening or make you think harder in one particular way about it? I was hoping that would be Mina too, okay? Because uh, <laughs> they approached me yeah. and said, we have something cool. And so I usually don't do my guests that way, but I said, hey, these are doctors, let's try it. And so... I did, you know, I didn't feel that it came off uh, impressive enough. But what they did say, and and others are saying similar things, is basically, if you just cut attendance in half in your school, that's going to have the biggest impact on reducing transmission of anything that you can do. It's better than distancing, face masks, hand washing, according to their modeling, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's important because if you're not going to cut back on school presence then you're never going to impact transmission. But what they also did say is this won't work without testing. And if there's a certain amount of circulation in your district, don't even open school. Right. So, but that's, that is interesting. I mean, one thing we, I know from listening to TWIV is that all models are wrong, but some are useful. But mm. their models said if you had to do one thing, if you could only make one modification, it was mm. cut the population in half in school. Right. right. That's right. That surprised me. I didn't think it was. I mean, looking at their their graphs, it makes a big difference. And you can go for maybe four or five weeks uh, without having to close school down, which is good. So oh, we're talking to Vincent Racaniello, the host of This Week in Virology, which you just absolutely should be listening to uh, if you are not. So we're going to just because I have you for a short amount of time, we're going to flip like a, a butterfly from from you know, flower to flower here. Um, and um, so, you know, one thing that the that the nation didn't do with testing is something that it did do with vaccine programs, which is, in other words, the, the, at the beginning of this whole thing, the White House could have said to people who make testing equipment, you know what, scale up as much as you want. We guarantee you, you will not lose money. In fact, here's money up front. Make as many damn tests as you possibly can. But they are doing this with vaccines. I mean, they are actually giving large sums of money to companies in the belief that they will have a vaccine, money to physically scale up for that vaccine. They've even give, given a, you know over a billion dollars to a company called Novavax, which has been around for 30 years without bringing any vaccine to market. Um, so I, I don't know, how, how does Operation Warp Speed look to you? Is, is this the way we're gonna get to a vaccine? It's one way, it's a fast way, because if you did it the normal way, it would take too long, right? There's, you have to wait for phase one to finish, phase two and phase three all in sequence. And by the way, the phase one of, uh, what is it, Moderna, which mm -hmm. they after 57 days, they said, okay, it looks good. Let's do the phase two. Phase one is still going on. It would take another year for that phase one to be done. Mm -hmm. So this is the way to accelerate it. And as Tony Fauci said, to lose money. You might lose money by taking some gambles. So I think it's a good idea. I don't agree with all the choices they're making, though. They're all really the same. They're doing the same kind of vaccine, slight modifications, and I think they should vary it more, but nobody's asking me. Right. So meanwhile, of course, as we know, Russia... Uh <laughs> 
<laughs> They've already got their vaccine. Um, the uh, I, I want to I'll, I'll throw you a joke that you can use on Twitter. It comes from, I think it was from Jimmy Fallon. He said uh, four out of five Russian scientists believe that this vaccine works, and uh, relatedly, one out of five Russian scientists are missing. Uh, <laughs> Very good. So. This uh, you guys talked about this in a recent episode. Th- this is something that we should probably not have a lot of confidence uh, in. If some of your friends are visiting Moscow and offer to bring you back some Russian COVID vaccine, you should probably demur. No, no, this is nothing. They they have barely tested it, and it's not even worth thinking about. However, the, the approach they're using to put one of the viral genes in a vector, an adenovirus vector, that's being done. Uh, by others, like the the Oxford vaccine is is doing that, mm-hmm. and we're supporting that. So we're going to get similar vaccines eventually. Um, I, just back to warp speed for a second. This is something that I, I brought up with a guest last week too. I mean, it seems to me the other danger here is we already have a core group of people in America who, prior to this pandemic, distrusted vaccines, didn't mm-hmm. want to get their kids vac- vaccinated for measles. It seems to me that we might be creating a second group of anti-vaxxers here, people who would ordinarily trust and believe in science and in scientific institutions. And because they they are that way, they see this thing that looks like it's cutting corners or it's going too fast or it's, you know, it's just trying to load too many procedures on top of uh, each other. We might have sort of a second group of anti-vaxxers who say, yes, I believe in science and medicine. I'm not sure this is that. I agree with you fully. We have a lot of listeners who write in and say, I'm not taking any of these vaccines because I don't trust them and I don't blame them. Uh, the, the name of the the operation Warp Speed alone is absurd, mm-hmm. right? And then there was another one, Shark Tank, which had some similar <laughs> connotation. So I agree it's an issue. Um, I think it could have been done. It could have been done differently to inspire more confidence. But I think maybe the only way you get companies to do this is to give them a lot of money. Otherwise, they're going to take their time. And so you got to make a decision. Do you want to rush a vaccine, or do you want the infection just to go through the population? My issue is, and you've heard this on Twiv, I'm not convinced that any of these vaccines will last more than a couple of months. And if they're 50 percent efficacious. What good is that if you give them to 100 people and 50 of them are not protected? I just don't see why that's worthwhile. So while we're talking about protection, let's talk about the other kind of protection. And this is something that you've been talking about on Twiv pretty much since the onset of the pandemic, which is how much protection do we get if we have the disease and recover from it? Um, Obviously, you have some immunity or you wouldn't have recovered. But then the next question is, how long does that immunity last? And I remember you saying months and months ago that you would be very surprised if the disease itself didn't confer substantial uh, immunity to uh, to someone who recovered from it. Where where's your thinking on that right now? Because there have been more more studies or at least more reporting on it. Well, we are still too early on to tell, right? It's only six, seven months. So anyone who talks about protection is it can't be honest because it's not enough time. Now, this is a virus. We know when you get infected, you get some kind of immunity. If you go from the seasonal coronaviruses, which are the closest to this virus, right? There you get infected every year and immunity goes away within a year and you get reinfected the next year, except you don't get sick. So I would guess with this virus, we're going to, get reinfected within a year, and you won't get very sick. But it's too soon to tell. And any anyone who's talking about reinfection is really talking about anecdotal stories that physicians are telling, and I wouldn't trust them. 
Right. I mean, they can look anyway at the antibodies that they find that are capable of incapacitating incapacitating mm -hmm. a coronavirus uh, in the blood of people months after they have recovered from COVID-19. But you're just saying the reality of this is that that's all they can really look at is what happens. There's nobody who's got blood a, a year after their, no, their COVID exactly. infection. Yeah. So we know antibodies last at least a couple of months. More important, I think, are T cells, right? The other arm of your immune response, the cells that kill virus infected cells, and there's plenty of evidence for coronaviruses that those are actually more important than antibodies in protecting you and helping you to recover. Uh, yet very few people are looking at those. Um, there are a lot of conversations going on these days about cross-reactive T-cells. Maybe you already have T-cells uh, that are capable of incapacitating current, this coronavirus because you've had other coronaviruses and, and developed those. And there are also kind of conversations going on about Maybe our concept of herd immunity, the herd immunity that, that some people think could happen without a vaccine simply because of enough immunity existing in a population, that maybe they've been setting the bar too high, that maybe, for example, even pockets of New York City might have something approaching herd immunity already at this point. And how do you react to that kind of speculation? I think it's absurd, frankly. I, I don't understand why people are saying these things. This is no different from a, any other virus. It's just brand new. It makes antibodies and T cells. You need a certain fraction of immunity. Whatever constitutes that immunity, whether it's antibodies or T cells or a combination of the two, it's about 70% for this virus. And having been infected with common cold coronas, it's not going to do anything because everyone's infected with those. So, why aren't we seeing any protection anyway? We're not. So I would just throw that out the window. I don't buy it. Well, I mean, I think the other thing is this might be a more interesting argument if there really were sort of population enclaves that remained untouched. I mean, if we were if you and I were living in, in Luca, you know, in 1820 or something, maybe nobody knew would come through town for a long time. Um, but I mean, the, the, here like I live in Connecticut where we have, you know, very low rates, uh, very good signs all around. But I don't know. There were some youth hockey teams that were moving in and out of here in New York State and over the weekend. Again, we got news about a whole bunch of new cases because, you know, unless we can impose a more European style lockdown where people really don't move around very much, I don't know how there could be herd immunity for one kind of sub geographical unit. Well, herd immunity applies to your area and who is going in and out of it. Right. Right. So, right. you know, New Zealand thought they were OK and then they let people in and that was the end of that. So um, you're only as good as, as the individuals who are coming to your area in terms of herd immunity. And this idea that you've already got a fraction of it is, just makes zero sense to me. I, I don't understand how people are thinking. Um, well, if you don't, who does? Um, well, let me ask you this. So at what point would you be comfortable taking a vaccine? Like what, what stage would things have to be or what would you have to know before you thought, oh, yeah, OK, I'll go get that shot? I'm a, I'm a special case because I'm happy to sit in my basement and do podcasts every day, okay? And uh, I don't need to go to a restaurant. I don't need to go work out. Uh, I, I go to work and, and there's hardly anyone there. Twice a week, I wear my face mask. But I would want to see how, first of all, the efficacy of the vaccine. If it's 50%, I think that's almost a waste of time. You know, when the first polio vaccine came out in 1955, it was 53% and people bemoaned that it was so bad. And mm -hmm. now we're talking about it's okay. 
Uh, I would also like to see how long it lasts. Let's say it protects 75% of the people, but only for three months, and then it's gone. It's a waste of time for me. So I, I want to wait at least uh, three, six months after it's licensed before I would take it. You know what I'm waiting for? What's that? When Vincent Racaniello takes it, then I'll take it. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're, you're my barometer. All right. So Vincent Racaniello is a professor of microbiology and immunology at the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Columbia University. And he's the host of the increasingly viral podcast this week in, in virology. It is appointment listening for many of us. Uh, and thanks very much for taking time today to talk to me. Thanks for having me back. I always enjoy it. All right. So we're going to take a break right now. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to another of our favorite guests, Margaret Sullivan from The Washington Post, about how to cover the postal situation. Ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. So, um, usually I do this a little bit later in the show, but because we're kind of in, in a natural halfway point in the show, we'll do it now. I want to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's in the studio uh, making everything hum and making everything work. And we have some complicated technology that we're using uh, and some not so complicated technology. And she's blending it all together and making it possible for us to work remotely. And by us, I mean, in this case, me and Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, producer of this episode. And so we're getting ready now to switch gears a, a little bit. Although we're not completely deconnecting from uh, from COVID-19, it's all related. Joining us now, one of our favorite uh, recurring guests, Margaret Sullivan, the media columnist for The Washington Post and the author of Get It While It's Hot. That's not part of the title. Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy. It's like she knew this was coming somehow. Uh, and she's with us now. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Colin. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Always great to be talking to you and, and on Connecticut Public Radio. So thank you. So um, uh, I don't know exactly how to even begin our conversation about the Postal Service, but what seems to be clear, there's almost a conflation of a whole series of narratives, right? Uh, on the one hand, you've got President Trump and his new, relatively new Postmaster General saying, no, we need to sort of just you know reduce the capacity of the Postal Service, that we need to create efficiencies here. So, yeah, we're pulling out some sorting machines and maybe getting rid of some, some mailboxes and stuff like that. But you've also got President Trump saying at other times that he, he really is interesting and interested in limiting the ability of people to vote by mail, uh, by that he that he gains some ground by curtailing it, uh, and the press is maybe trying to figure out how how to report on this, how to construct this story so that people uh, understand it. So I don't know. I'm I'm not really framing the question very well, but just take it from there. Sure. Well, for me, the the sort of signal moment was last week, last Thursday, when. Um, in an interview with Fox Business Network, uh, President Trump, you know, somewhat to me jaw-droppingly, um, said, you know, the expression is he said the quiet part out loud. Right. And what he said actually, was, Actually, Margaret, we can help you out here. We've got the clip. Here, let's okay. just fire it off for you. They want $3.5 billion for the mail-in votes, okay, universal mail-in ballots. Three and a half trillion. They want 25 billion dollars billion 
for the post office. Now, they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. Now, in the meantime, they aren't getting there. By the way, those are just two items. But if they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting because they're not equipped to have it. See, one reason President Trump could never be on law and order, because he's I would always confess in the first five minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love, love your phrase. He said the quiet part out loud. It's kind of like when he turned to Lester Holt after he'd fired James Comey and said, well, yeah, it was the Russia thing. <laughs> right, exactly. But and yet somehow these, you know, these admissions, you know, get ignored or, or, or somehow glossed over. Although this one really isn't getting glossed over. And I'm, I'm happy to see that because my point and the point I, I made in a column over the weekend was that the news media really needs to treat what's going on with the post office and President Trump's statements about it as kind of a, a five alarm fire in terms of um, in terms of the democracy. I mean, I don't I don't want to um, overstate things, but I, I guess I don't think you really can here when what he's saying is we I mean, what he's saying in essence is we don't want people to be able to vote when they can't or don't think they should go to the polls in the old way, stand in line, you know, maybe endanger themselves. Um, the answer to that is vote by mail or absentee voting, which are pretty much the same thing. And uh, he's saying, no, I don't want that. And so in, in essence, he's saying, I really don't want everyone to be able to vote. And, and to hear the president of the United States say that as inured as we are to these outrages that come out of his mouth is still pretty shocking and should be treated as such. And we need to follow the story, you know, every day. One reason that it may resonate is it's something I mean, look, there was a post postal guy, a postal official on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Everybody has a mail carrier. 91% of Americans like the U.S. Postal Service. 91% of Americans don't like much of anything. So, I mean, that's kind of astonishing. But pure pure research. It's ice ice cream and the Postal Service. That's all. So, you know, with all of that, and this isn't as complicated as asking the president of Ukraine to come up with some information against one of your political opponents in return for uh, a prearranged delivery of armaments. Uh, Not that that was a particularly complicated (laughs) uh, narrative, but this is even less complicated, right? I mean, the president of the United States is talking about the Postal Service, something that we all deal with, you know, six days a week. Uh, And it's not far flung. It should be pretty easy for Americans to understand. But are there things that we of the press need to do to emphasize that understanding? I mean, I think so. Um, To not let it be a one day or a two day story or a story that sort of lingers for a day or two over the weekend, but to really to really follow it uh, throughout the country. I mean, one thing that we know is that because of COVID-19 and the economic downturn and the stress on the on the postal system and the way it's been underfunded, mail is already um, being delivered much later than than we're used to having it. I mean, I think almost everyone that I talk to has had the experience of, you know, you're expecting something and it takes an extra week to get there or something. And so, you know, to not address that, this is a cash-strapped um, institution right now. It's in trouble. And it needs the help, particularly 
uh, right now when people like uh, older people, uh, veterans are waiting for their meds to come in the mail, and particularly when there are going to be a lot more people voting by mail, which is a good thing. We want people to exercise the franchise and be able to vote whoever they vote for. Um, they should be able to cast their ballot. And sort of the, one of the weird things about this is that is that President Trump will will sing the praises of absentee voting in Florida, where he intends to vote from because of his residence now uh, permanently there. Um, you know, his his permanent residence being there. Um, and so he'll say, yeah, got to do that, everybody. Vote absentee from Florida. Absentee voting and vote by mail are, are essentially the same process. So um, it's just, it confounds, um, it confounds logic. Right. And I think it also creates a kind of circularity in, in the following sense. You know, we know, those of us who've reported this, who've researched this and everything, we know that voting by mail works. There's five states that vote entirely by mail. There's another 29 states, plus the District of Columbia, I believe, where you can get a mail ballot without having to provide some kind of reason or explanation. You can just get it because you want it. Um, Those places, those 34 states, don't have worse problems uh, and they don't they don't have higher rates of voter fraud or anything like that. They don't. So ordinarily, we would make the argument, well, voting by mail works, except that now we're wondering whether voting by mail works because the president has kneecapped it, allowing him also to raise the argument that maybe voting by mail doesn't work. And that's what I mean by right. circularity. It's kind of like that's right. the thing we that's would ordinarily right. assert isn't true anymore because of something he did. Yes. And I think that part of this is to sort of muddy the waters about what's going to happen on Election Day. You know, he's he knows he's down in the polls. He knows that he is not um, the favored candidate right now. And obviously a lot can change between now and, and the election. But given that, um, you know, he seems to be trying to preemptively um, create questions about whether the election will be valid. So, you know, let's just say that on election night, um, you know, he's he's leading, but there are, you know, millions or hundreds of thousands, um, millions really, of votes that haven't been counted yet or haven't been received yet. You know, it, it may be a situation where it works to his benefit to say, you know, it's all it's all fraud anyway. We've got the votes we need. I just won. Um, and and I think that's not, you know, we've seen a lot of outrages in this administration. I don't think that's hard to, you know, you can't really say, oh, gosh, that would never happen. Of course, it, of course it would happen. Stranger things have happened. Right. And I, I do think that as journalists, too. So, you know, I mean, first of all, most of us journalists have covered state elections, local elections, and we've seen, you know, we've seen things where the results are not immediately conclusive, where we've had to wait, where there have been close counts. And then we all lived through 2000, you know, which was um, for most of us at a national level unprecedented. And we wound up learning all these new terms like hanging chads and stuff. And it, it was a very uncomfortable situation that went all the way to the Supreme Court. But I wonder if any of that has prepared us for the scenario you just described, 
where it's, you know, minimum four days after Election Day before we actually have anything approaching workable numbers or a callable result. Do we do that's we need right. to train be better? Long, be, right. And that's part of what I think the news media's job is here is to, you know, really inform people on a on a continuing basis that this is probably not an election like anything we've lived through before. And you're right. 20 years ago, um, that was a highly unusual event. I mean, I remember it well because I was in the Buffalo News newsroom trying to figure out what headline we should put on the paper the next day. And there was no answer to that. So I think we went with something like too close to call. Um, thank goodness. But um, but this could be even stranger because we have, a, you know, a number of new elements here, one of which is a president who has made it clear that he's he's trying to sow confusion and disillusionment with the integrity of voting. And as you say, Colin, there are there's really no reason to think that there's fraud uh, certainly not rampant fraud or serious fraud um, within this vote by mail system. There have been a bunch of studies done, one um, by the nonpartisan Brennan Center for Justice that I link to in my column that's worth people having a look at. You know, there's just no evidence to support that these votes that come in by mail are, are not valid. No, and actually, one thing that's often helpful, well, I don't know whether it's helpful or not, I shouldn't say that, but one of the significant databases of election fraud reports is maintained by the Conservative Heritage Foundation, mm-hmm. and they've reported 1,200 allegations total of voter fraud uh, since 2000. So in 20 years of voting, 1,200 allegations, that's not a lot. Of those, only 204 allegations and 143 convictions involve mail-in ballots. So, I mean, 250 Which million is truly or so. truly minuscule. Yeah. 250 <laughs> million or so mail-in ballots have been cast one way or another in that time. And and we're talking about a number in the hundreds, low hundreds. So, I mean, I actually think that the that the post office can handle this. Um, You know, they handle billions of pieces of mail at Christmas time. Um, There are 150 million registered voters in the United States. So, you know, they can actually handle the volume. In some ways, this is it's partly about, you know, funding and the expectation that you can do it this way, but it's also about managing expectations about, you know, what it is to have a, an election called much later than people are used to it. So that's, you know, that's sort of a self-education process on the part of the media, but also getting that message out to the populace. Yeah, I want to talk more about getting that message out. We have to take a very quick break here. Uh, we'll come back. I should say, you know, Margaret, you said the post office is capable of handling this. Well, the old post office was definitely capable of handling this. I don't know what, right. what what post office we have after Mr. DeJoy gets, or General uh, DeJoy, or whatever he is, gets through uh, bringing it under his heel. Uh, all right, we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of Margaret Sullivan after this.
All right, so we're back, and we are so fortunate to have uh, Margaret Sullivan here with us today, media columnist at The Washington Post and the author of Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis uh, of American Democracy. Uh, and when the paperback edition comes out, she'll be able to add even more crises uh, to it uh, in an <laughs> afterword, uh, j- just like uh, Adam Gopnik did a week or two ago. So um, I want to talk a little bit about how we convey the unusualness and the urgency of some of these problems to our readers, our listeners, our, our viewers. But before I do that, uh, let's listen to a fella named Obama talk about that exact problem. What we've seen in a way that is unique to modern political history is a president who's explicit in trying to discourage people from voting, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you, usually the Republican Party for quite some time has actively tried to discourage people's votes from counting in all kinds of ways, whether it's voter ID laws or you know blatant gerrymandering, making it difficult for people in certain precincts to find their polling places, right? I, you know, all that stuff is contrary to American democracy, but you know, I think the Republicans' view has been it's all fair game as long as it helps us gain power. What we've never seen before is a president say, I'm going to try to actively kneecap the Postal Service <laughs> to encourage voting, and I will be explicit about the reason I'm doing it. I didn't realize he said kneecap too. All right. So there's a reason we're using all this kind of mafia tech, uh, terminology, I think, to talk <laughs> okay. about it. So, Margaret, there's a way in which, you know, I sometimes feel like we're meteorologists who issue a tornado warning every single day. And even if there are tornadoes every day, there's a way in which maybe people, it starts to kind of be white noise, especially maybe for the people kind of in the middle, the people who are still making up their minds about things. So how do we deal with that? Right. Yes, we have become, we in the press and I think people who are news consumers, a.k.a. citizens, um, have become kind of inured to all of this information and all of this news and all of these outrages coming at us for, for years now. And so, you, you know, that's a great question. How do we get across something that's even at a higher level now of outrage or worry or, you know, distress? And I think that part of it is we have to be very plain in our language. Um, we have to get away from some of our conventions of false equivalency. You know, well, there's this and there's that, and we're not really sure, so you decide. Uh, we have to stop doing that as much and try to get to the nub of the truth more clearly. And then I think we have to stay with these stories and find new angles and new ways to tell them Um from not just not just last week on Thursday when this happened, but over the weekend and next week and all the way to the election, because people really need to know. And this is something that, you know, this business about the post office being under siege is not and should not be a partisan issue. The post office serves all citizens, and it's not about, it should not be about politics. It should be about something that we all depend on that is uh, essential to our lives and our democracy. So, you know, the more we can stress that, I think the better the coverage will be. 
it, it, you know, both of us are, I think, admirers of Jay Rosen, uh, the creator of Press Think, the, yep. the journalism theorist. You know, and his argument all along is we should stop treating this as a traditional reporting environment that, you know, going back to the 2016 campaign, he said, you know, symmetrical reporting where you kind of do 50 of this and 50 of that is a mistake. Maybe in this in a similar way, after Brexit, there was some critique of the British press that they, you know, they they would find a few economists uh, who could make the argument that Brexit was a good idea, but the vast preponderance of British economists didn't think so. But, you know, you you present both sides. So that's Rosen's first argument. Stop treating this as a situation where there are two narratives equally compelling and each deserving of consideration. My concern about that always is that you might lose people who do who do value some sense of fairness or equilibrium. I mean, you have to sort of think about the reader. What does the reader want? And will the reader accept a kind of lopsided view of things? Right. And I think we can help to solve that problem by providing context. I mean, we should not be um, issuing a blast of partisanship. That's not our job. We should be presenting context. So, um, yes, give people a full idea of everything that's going on, the sort of the full range of what people are saying, but put it in a context that that is more responsible. Um, one of the things that I've written about and Jay Rosen has talked about is the idea of the truth sandwich. So rather than repeating lies and then later coming back with a fact check, you know, start with the truth statement. And then if you need to introduce something that's false, introduce it and fact check it after that so that so that the preponderance of what the media is putting out there is factual and is true and is accurate. So it, it kind of calls us to, to think differently and get away from our conventions, which aren't serving us all that well right now. Right. Uh, I think it might be George Lakoff, who's actually the um, in inventor yeah. of, the, of the Truth Sandwich. And the only reason I know that is that in, in speaking to Jay Rosen on this show, I attributed it to him and he corrected me. So uh, and I think Subway now actually sells one, too. So that's uh, um, so it's actually not a truth sandwich. When you think about it, it's actually the, the lie is the sandwich and the truth is this is the bread. But, you know, we can't get into all of that. Well, no, we can. I mean, so in other words, just to give people an example, we would say um Voter fraud is very rare, and it's even rarer uh, uh, in the mail. Uh, and then President Trump is occasionally alleges that such and such, such a thing is the case. And then the other piece of bread, voter fraud is incredibly rare. Right. Studies uh, show that there just is that just isn't happening. That's right. right. But I mean, in terms of the rest of this, and particularly, you know, given the fact that your book is out right now, how. How else can we be doing a better job? How else can our, our here's our profession and we're confronted with this weird presidency in which the the actual institutions of the presidency are constantly under assault by the president. And that's all taking place against the backdrop of the pandemic, which makes a lot of other things difficult. I don't know. Are there some other ways you wish we would do our job a little better? And you only have about two and a half minutes. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, some of it is finding ways to engage people about subjects that are hard to engage people about. I mean, I've, I've talked about this with, with climate change. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a huge story. It's an extremely troubling, dominant 
you know, storyline, but it can be hard to get across the urgency of it because in many cases it isn't fully touching people's lives, or maybe it is, but they don't recognize it as such. But it's our job as members of the media, as journalists, to find ways to tell these stories in engaging ways that do get through to people. I mean, I don't think we can say, oh, I just can't, I can't find a way to tell it in a way that matters. Sure you can. You know, you tell it through people's lives. You tell it through statistics. You tell it through infographics. There's, there are many ways to get the story across. And it's our responsibility to do that. So I think we have to rise to this challenge and and to keep coming back to it. So often we get distracted by the next shiny object and we forget the extremely important story that we says that we said was so huge yesterday, but now we've moved on to something else. And of course President Trump is very skilled at providing that distraction. So we have to kind of keep our eyes on the prize. All right. So uh, you heard it, uh, particularly if you're a journalist out there. That was Margaret Sullivan's halftime locker room speech. Uh, go back out there on the field and and try to put some Get points the on the board done. here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, media columnist at The Washington Post and the author of Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy. Margaret, always great to hear your voice on our airwaves. Thanks so much for having me. And tomorrow we're going to air a show about time. You know, time... I think it was St. Augustine who said, I know what time is unless someone asks me. Uh, time is a very hard thing to quantify and explain. It exists in your body if you wake up at 2.38 every, every morning and you don't know why. It exists in the cosmos. We're going to try to explain all of that to you in how many minutes is our show? Well, it'll be very fast. We'll be less than an hour anyway. We'll explain this to you. All right. Thanks for listening today. We really appreciate it. Thanks to Betsy. Thanks to Kat. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>